Hey, y'all, and welcome to the third episode of the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders, and I'm going to be your host. I've got a great guest for you today. It's Miss Megan Wu from Rapid7. And Megan and I had a lot of great conversation that I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, I know Megan because, like me, she also, at some point while working in information security, uh, gained an interest in the human side of it and started pursuing education in psychology. So that's actually um, how we kind of found each other, uh, mostly on Twitter, and we exchanged some conversation about our work and um, became friends since then. So uh, I asked her to be on the podcast. I think she has a very interesting perspective about the field and how she got into it. Uh, you're going to hear us talk about some pretty important things. Uh, first and foremost is Waffle House. I know the thing you look for uh, in your information security podcast is Waffle House, how people eat their hash browns and so on. So we're going to hit that hard, hit it early, hit it fast. Uh, and I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, Waffle House is basically religion in the South. Um, and oh gosh, I Waffle House, man. Anyways, uh, so you're going to hear us talk about that. Uh, you're also going to hear Megan talk a little bit about speaking and how she started speaking at InfoSec conferences. So uh, if you are interested in doing something like that, I think you're going to learn a lot from Megan talking about uh, that process, what it was like for her, how nerves played into it, and what really led her to be someone who speaks at quite a few conferences now and does such a great uh, job at it. So we're going to talk about all those different things. Of course, her career progression, how she went from uh, entry level uh, to what she's doing now and the great work at, uh, at Rapid7. Now, remember, if you like what you hear while you're listening, make sure and uh, send a note over to Megan. You can find her on Twitter at Tottenkoff. Uh, it's T-O-T-T-E-N-K-O. PH. And of course, if you have feedback, you can always send that to me as well at Chris Sanders 88. With that said, let's get on over to Megan. So Megan, you're, you're at rapid seven now, and I want to kind of go back to the beginning, but first I want you to kind of set the stage and tell us a little bit about what you do at rapid seven. Yeah. So right now I'm a senior consultant with their strategic advisory services group. And so basically what we do is we do a little bit of program development. So let's say you want to build up your vulnerability management program. Right, we would sit with folks and talk about their goals and write up a program, figure out what reporting and KPI, uh, what is it, key performance indicators that they need, and so many acronyms in our industry. <laughs> and, uh, we also do maturity assessments, so that's when we spend some time with folks, figure out what their current state of security is like, and then. Uh, and then compare that to where they want to be or where they're where they should be in their industry and then give them recommendations on how to get from point A to point B. So it sounds like you're you're kind of in this generalist generalist consulting role where you kind of have to be a little bit of a, of a general practitioner and understand a lot of different facets of the security program. Is that accurate? Yep, exactly. Okay, cool. That's that's got to be a fun job when you're going out and I imagine you work with people at kind of all different maturity levels within security, the the folks who are kind of just accepting that that it's that's a thing that they need to worry about and maybe the more advanced folks, is that right? Yep. That's cool. right. That's awesome. Well, let's I want to learn uh, I want to learn and help the others who are listening here learn a little bit about how you got here and how you got to this point. And uh, you mentioned to me you're you're living in Florida and I guess you're you're living where you're from. You're you're maybe in your hometown or around there? Yeah, I actually live like five minutes away from my parents' house. Wow. <laughs> wow. And what part of Florida are you in? 
Uh, the Tampa Bay area, so like St. Petersburg area. Okay, so I've I'm I'm from Kentucky and I live in Georgia now, so I'm I'm familiar with the South. But Florida is kind of its own thing, where it's not really the South. It's kind of I don't know. We don't we don't always where I'm from. We don't always think of it as part of the South, so it's a little bit different. So tell me, what's life like growing up in Florida for little Megan? <laughs> well, it was kind of boring because so in St. Petersburg we have this nickname for the city, and it's uh, God's waiting room. <laughs> so it's basically where people move to die. So growing up, it was kind of boring because the average age, I think, was like in the upper 40s, low 50s, right? And uh, so spent a lot of time reading and on the computer when we got our first computer. Okay. what what, what Do you remember what, what model your first computer was? No, no clue. And I, I know that's like a huge point of like pride for a lot of folks, but no. I think it was like some random Dell or Gateway. Well, if it makes you feel better, I don't actually remember my first computer either. So I'm, I'm in that same boat with you. I think we're in the minority, but we're in it together. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's a pretty boring place to go up. I mean, is it like, I don't, I know where I'm from. The thing to do, basically, if you got bored was like, we went to Walmart. Like that was the only thing to do. <laughs> I mean, is that, is that kind of the same thing y'all did? That is so funny because that's exactly what we did. We had a 24-hour Walmart like across the street from where my parents live, more or less. <laughs> and we just go and hang out and like rearrange stuff and annoy the clerks. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Bill Walton could have ever imagined that when he built Walmart and made it, you know, it got to where it was 24/7 that that would be the place <laughs> in America where most places when you didn't have anything to do, that's where you went. Cause I don't know in my town, Walmart was the only thing that was open 24 seven for a long time. We, we eventually got a waffle house, but, uh, it was just Walmart, you know, that was it. Nice. And actually the waffle house was my very first job out of high school. Oh man, that, that's great. I was going to ask it. So you worked at the waffle house. Now were you, were you, uh, like a waitress or did you, were you like working the grill? What did you do at waffle house? So I, as soon as I turned 18, I begged for them to let me be a waitress on the third shift because the one that I was working at at the time was right off the beach. So everybody would come up drunk after bars closed and they would just spend stupid amounts of money at Waffle House and tip really well because I was like one of the only waitresses that had all my teeth and wasn't like on meth. So it was great. That's, you said you were 13? No, no, 18. Oh, 13. 18. Okay, I thought I heard 13. I was like, wow, the <laughs> no. uh, labor laws are, are not that strict in Florida. <laughs> very very relaxed. Very yeah. relaxed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's awesome. I, Waffle House in Georgia is like religion. Um, it's like a big thing. And I can't knock it too much. Like, I literally ate at Waffle House two days ago. Uh, <laughs> so the important question is, how do you take your hash browns? Uh, smothered, covered, and capped. Smothered, covered, and capped. You don't hear a lot about people doing the, the capped hash browns. That's uh, I don't feel like you see that as much. I'm a I'm a covered and chunked guy myself. Oh, okay, you like the ham? That's I, cool. I like the ham. I gotta have. I mean, I'm a meat guy. I gotta have meat in everything. So that includes <laughs> my hash browns. But well, that's that's humble beginnings for you. Uh, start out at the Waffle House, and and now you're here. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? That's awesome. <laughs> so so tell me about Megan as a student. So you know you're living in in, in Florida. It's a little boring. You're getting into computers. You're reading a lot. We're would you consider yourself a good student? Did you gravitate towards this particular subject? Tell me about that. So I was a pretty average student, like probably B's and C's mostly. Like I tried to get high enough grades where I wouldn't get in trouble <laughs> by my parents, but I had a hard time focusing a lot in school. Um, for the longest time, um, I, I'm trying to think. Yeah. So we have, we had a couple of magnet programs. I don't know if you're familiar with what that is, but basically it's um, a mini 
school within a school, either middle school or high school, that mm-hmm. has a targeted program. So it could be medical, technology, uh, business, all sorts of different things. So I was actually in the medical magnet in high school because I wanted to be a forensic psychologist. Oh wow! So well, that's it. That's interesting, and uh, I think the listeners will find out why that's interesting when we get to get to some more things uh, <laughs> later for sure. But that that's cool. So how you know how did you? Well, I guess you got into this forensic psychology thing, and you're doing the medical stuff. How did you get to technology from that, or was that just kind of an aside that came out later? Well, so uh, starting, I think thirteen or so. Yeah, I think thirteen, middle school age. I started volunteering every summer in every school holiday at the Veterans Hospital, which is where my dad worked. So, uh, yeah, I would spend all my time there after school volunteering and, you know, lots of patients there. And then one year I had a job delivering blood samples from radiology to the, or no, from a nursing station to radiology. And I watched them take the sample and then hand me the warm bag. And about halfway through, I fainted. I totally passed <laughs> out. So turns out I can't handle blood too well, <laughs> which is kind of important if you're going to go into forensics. Well, and, and there's something to be said for the fact that you can't handle blood, but you can handle the midnight shift at Waffle House. I know, right? <laughs> totally <laughs> random. <laughs> oh, but I never cleaned the bathrooms. Oh, okay. That's, that's where you drew the line. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. That's probably like, no, that's, cool. that's probably a good line to draw. <laughs> yeah, and then so a couple of weeks after that incident, um, at the hospital they had a huge virus outbreak, like it spread rampant throughout the entire campus. And my dad worked at in the IT department, so I got to watch him and his teammates, who were like a second family almost, kind of go through and basically go through the steps of incident response. You know, they did the detection, the detection, investigation, the cleanup, all of that stuff. And I was just super interested. So I think that's what got me really focused more onto uh, security and technology as something more than just a hobby. Yeah. And so I guess this was probably at a time where maybe the hospital didn't necessarily have a dedicated security team and just kind of everybody had to do security or, or was that the case? Yeah, I think they had a CSO and that's it, or a CIO and that was it. Wow. Okay. So, so your your dad was in IT, so that that you know was probably a pretty good influence, which I guess played somewhat of a factor of you kind of pursuing an IT related career later on. Was that something that was kind of always present, or was that something that that not at all? I mean, how, what kind of impact did that have on you? Oh yeah, like I would say from an early age, we had a lot of. Uh, exposure to tech and computers and stuff. So I I still have a printout um, from a message that my dad sent me uh, when he was stationed over in Korea because he's a veteran as well. So he was in Korea. It was I think it was around my birthday, and we went to go visit the server room because they had a message for us. And I remember seeing like these huge machines. They they were this they rose all the way up to the ceiling. Um, my dad still had punch cards from the longest wow. time uh, growing up, and then, um, and then, I think around like early age, like elementary school, he had us sit and learn how to type, so I can now touch type and 
average like 96 to 102 words per minute uh-huh. with like less than 10 <laughs> errors. By 10, he was teaching me HTML and uh, uh, CSS. So that was kind of cool. Wow. So it's like it's like you had a built-in mentor from early on. Whether you, whether you knew you were going to pursue this stuff or not, you were at least getting a lot of these fundamental skills that exactly. would, would be valuable in some way. And, and I guess it's pretty cool that your dad recognized like this stuff's important and probably will mean something more than it does now even one day. Yeah. That's cool. So, so you're taking all this, you're taking all this kind of mentorship and you've done the, you tried the medical thing, couldn't handle the blood. You're, you're shifting towards technology and I guess you're still in high school at this point and maybe you're nearing the end of high school and you're starting to think about what's next. So what was your thought process there? And at that point, were you pretty set on technology or were you thinking other things? So yeah, I would, I would say I was pretty set on technology. I was still waffling on information security and uh, so around that time, I got my first technical internship while I was in college doing software testing for a local financial company. And then I went out to DEF CON. After, I went out to my second DEF CON, sorry. So yeah, my second DEF CON after my first internship, I gave a presentation on hijacking the outdoor digital billboard network. And then I came home on it like a super high because <laughs> I just spent, I just gave my first presentation in front of a huge audience. I was at DEF CON and the energy there is amazing. Um, a couple months prior to that, I went to my first Nauticon. And at Nauticon, I saw this talk by James Arlen called uh, From Black Hat to Black Tie. And I think between Nauticon and DEF CON 16, that's what really cinched it for me that I wanted to go into security. Wow. So, and you were presenting at DEF CON in high school? Uh, no, no. I was newly 21 okay. when I gave my DEF CON presentation. Okay. So, so what was it? So, I know you've gone to college, but do you, did you go to college straight out of high school or was that a later thing? Yep. I uh, went straight into college. Okay. And did you go into a, a technology-focused major? Yep. So, I have my – well, I have a general associate's degree – and then a certificate that I completed for information security. I got my bachelor's in IT management with a focus in security. So, gotcha. So, yeah. so tell me this. I mean, one of the things I think I think once you kind of get to a certain point in in IT and especially security, you kind of have this epiphany where you know you have college education and then you have. I guess maybe real education, uh, which a lot of that's on the job and it's kind of this whole scene and a lot of the stuff you learn when you go to places like DEF CON and Nauticon and so on. So you have these two competing threads of education. How do you, from your perspective at this time in your life, compare and contrast those? I mean, was college that effective for you in learning about technology or did most all of that come through the other stuff you were doing? So I would think the biggest thing that college taught me would be how to write in a more formal manner. And I think that was really important, especially where I'm at right now. But as far as the more technical things, I learned more at going to the conventions, most definitely. Yeah. So what, what, you know, if in college, what did you enjoy? I mean, obviously you're maybe not learning as much as you'd hoped about technology in those uh, classes, but you're having your eyes open in some of these cons. Did you kind of realize that was going on at the time? Did you realize, you know, one of the problems with, with what we do a lot of times is you don't realize how much you don't know. And I suppose maybe all these conferences were teaching you about all the things you didn't know. So did you start to, at that time, understand at college that maybe you weren't getting the technical education you needed? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Especially since the bachelor's program was more managerial focused. So it was more like on policy development and stuff like that. So I'm like, at the time, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But what can I do with this? If I'm not a manager, they're not going to hire me as a manager straight out of, you know, college and high school. So Mm -hmm. that was frustrating. And then going to the the conventions were like a huge, huge supplement, I would say. Mm -hmm. So tell me this. So, you know, a lot of people around that time would probably think I'm going to go into computer science, but you didn't do that. What was it about computer science that just didn't appeal to you at the time? So honestly, I hate, I don't like math that much, Mm -hmm. first of all. And then second of all, I just don't have the patience to sit and really get into a programming language. Yeah. I get distracted way too easy. Yeah, no, that, that, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think that's a common thread I, from a lot of other people I've talked to. And, and quite honestly, me too, was that I was not super great at math. And I was into computers, but basically if I wanted to do computer science, I had to do all this intensive math that, and a lot of it probably not even entirely relevant. And that kind of scared me off. Um, so I can, I can certainly relate to that. Uh, and I think a lot of people can. So uh, now in the program you were in, was it taught by, was it still taught partially by computer science faculty or was it kind of its own department? So the bachelor's degree program was definitely taught by like a computer science person. I think they might've had a little bit of business and managerial experience of like an IT department, but not really specific security experience. I did have one teacher though in my um, certificate program who was a practitioner and she made a huge impact. Like she would have a stay after class and we would set up labs and work on a whole bunch of different things. That's where I first opened up Metasploit. <laughs> wow. So, so you get, you did get that from a faculty member in college. And so that person probably had a pretty significant impact on, on you going forward. Oh, definitely. Cool. Do you, are you, are you still in touch with that, with that person? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, it happens. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it happens, but that's, that's cool. I mean, did you have anybody like that in high school as well? I mean, this was college. Did you have anybody in high school who kind of grasped onto the, the technical aspect and really helped you out there? Or did that not really come till college? No, I would say like the closest I got would be a math teacher who was really also into technology and things like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. So I kind of latched onto him a little bit as a mentor, but not really, not much. It was yeah. basically my dad and then college. Gotcha. <laughs> That makes sense. So, so you're, you're out of college now and you're, you're kind of still involved in the community. You're doing your speaking thing. Uh, well, t- tell me about that. Tell me about speaking and especially like your first DEF CON. That's, you know, there, there are, you know, 60 year old people who have been in this field for 40 years to go to speak at DEF CON the first time. And they're, they're frightened. Um, and you're fairly young doing it your first time. So what was, what was that like for you? Uh, it was probably the scariest thing in the world because uh, they had it was the it was one of the last talks right before closing ceremonies, and my time slot was against one of the talks that Jason Scott was giving at the time. So I was just convinced that nobody was going to show up, and if anybody did show up, it was just going to be it was going to fall flat or they would leave. But that wasn't the case, and that almost made it worse and scarier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I was supposed to present with two other folks, but for various reasons, they couldn't make it to the convention. So I ended up going up and presenting by myself. And before the talk, I made the mistake of going to the Star Trek experience 
while it was still open. So this is at the uh, Riviera, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just went to the Riviera where we went to the Star Trek experience, had a couple warp core breaches and I was, I had a really good buzz going on, uh-huh. <laughs> going up on stage <laughs> and that helped a lot with the nerves. Yeah. But yeah, anxiety was definitely at an all-time high. Well, yeah, and the the other two folks weren't able to make it, so so no pressure, but it's all on you at that point. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So what what made you want to even speak at DEFCON? It sounds like that was your second DEFCON, is that right? Yep, that was my second DEFCON. So you'd gone to the first one, seen what it was all about, and, and was that really when you decided, hey, maybe I want to do this someday? No. So <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't think so. I think the idea for the talk came much later. Like mm-hmm. I had no intention of speaking because public speaking frightens the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the first DEF CON, I was just there on a whim and I brought two friends in tow because we were all on unemployment and we're like broke college kids. So we're like, yeah, let's go to Vegas because why not? And we, <laughs> we all hung out and then I did lost's mystery challenge he had like this huge monster of an iron box for folks to try to figure out and open up and just trying to find people and talking with them and figuring out how to do different things i learned how to lock pick there and it was just amazing mm-hmm. do you uh do you still get nervous when you speak now oh definitely yeah definitely not not as bad though right or is it, is it just as bad I would say maybe it's a little bit better, but it's still pretty bad. <laughs> it doesn't get easier. Yeah. Well, it might, it might, it gets a little bit easier, but it's still, you got to pump yourself up for it. Yeah. Well, what about confidence? And, and a lot of people come to me the first time they speak and, and their real problem is confidence. And uh, what I've noticed is they're really lacking confidence the first time and they get that as they go on over their career. But the fear of not having confidence is often replaced by the fear of, you know, harming reputation, screwing up, doing something stupid, people not understanding it, what have you. If, if you, you know, and maybe something, this is something you've thought about in depth, but in terms of what makes you nervous about speaking, has it changed from back then to now? Is it the same thing or is it something different? So the first time it was just the thought of talking in front of other people scared me. <laughs> now it's more of a kind of an, almost an inferior, like an inferiority complex. Or, you know, that imposter syndrome yeah. we get from time to time. Mm-hmm. So just like, oh, man, somebody who knows way more about this subject than me is going to be in this audience and they're going to call me out and I'm going to look stupid. But then you got to kind of change that narrative, right? Yeah. So. Well, and, and how, how do you think, I mean, changing that narrative, that's a, that's a tough thing, right? And, and I think the community as it exists, or at least pockets of it, don't do a lot of good in terms of helping that along, right? And And – what would you what would you say to someone who's maybe in your shoes now uh, or who was in the shoes you were in back when you were doing your first defcon and they're they're kind of feeling that whole imposter syndrome thing uh you know what do you think the best way to remedy that is is it just is it is it support by a peer group is it uh just kind of doing it once and and dealing with it and getting over it and going on to the next thing i mean what do you think I think it really depends on the person. So like there's more mentorship programs now. So besides London and besides Las Vegas and a couple of other conferences, you know, feature mentorship programs for new speakers. And I think that's definitely a really good way to go if you're nervous about presenting for the first time. And then, um, oh, also Jimmy Vo and I shoot, I forget his name. Uh, somebody else have, has basically rebooted the InfoSec mentorship program. Yeah. So 
that's another way to go. And then maybe talking with somebody more senior and hearing about their experiences presenting could help as well. Um, otherwise, if you're just that kind of person who's like a rip off the bandaid, dive into the deep end kind of person, you just got to do it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes that makes good sense. Uh, now, was DEF CON the first time you ever spoke about security kind of a, to an audience like that? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, jumping right into the deep end there, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, that's probably one way to help uh, get over those nerves, too, is just go into the uh, the biggest security conference that exists in the world at the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. No big deal, right? Just the world's largest hacker con. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, great. So, all right. So you're, uh, so, you know, you're, you're, you did the college thing, you're involved in the community, you're progressing through your career. And we talked about, you know, you got your job, uh, I think doing some assessment work. I think you maybe said an insurance company. Is that right? Oh, um, so I did software testing for a while Okay. and then tech support and then software testing. And then my first security gig was the result of meeting, uh, meeting folks at different conventions. And then one of them saying, Hey, we have an opening in your area because that by that time I had moved to Seattle. Um, so yeah, they were like, yeah, we, you know, my company is a consulting group. You have your bachelor's degree. You have spoken multiple times at DEF CON and Nauticon at this point. You should totally apply. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's, that's how I got that first job was basically that referral and then finding ways. So along the, along the road, when I was doing the software testing and the um, tech support stuff, I would try to find ways to incorporate security practices. So I got really into like um, access management and identity management, um, web application testing, stuff like that. So I could put on the resume. Mm-hmm. And where did that lead you next? Or was that was that right before Rapid7 at that point? So that took me to Protivity. And I spent about two years with them. And I, that's where I learned how to do... I did my first like um, digital forensics incident response type gig. And I was like, no, this isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> Just not my interest. But that's cool. It's, it was still good to learn. And then... Um, I was a PCI QSA during that time. So that was pretty cool to see it from the auditing side. So a lot of folks were like, oh, QSA auditor. (laughs) But they forget that it's, you know, for some folks, it's that stepping stone into security. It's how they can convince upper level management to give them the budget to invest in security stuff. You know, it's by no means a one-stop shop, but yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, and we see this a lot of places, right? The, the first step for a lot of people into security is compliance and, and it's not until you force someone to do it, that it kind of opens their eyes and you learn the things you didn't know existed and that gets you there. And that's, you know, ultimately, I guess it doesn't matter what path people take to get to securing their data and their users better, as long as they get moving along that path. Exactly. Yeah, cool. So, well, tell me about the incident response part. You mentioned that that you figured that kind of wasn't for you. What was it? What was it about incident response that just didn't really jive with what you enjoyed doing? So, I'm trying to think. So, there were two, actually, two different incident response, uh, digital forensics, forensics type uh, job projects that I had. So, the first one was kind of like, was this a breach or was this just a um, a case of bad programming? Right. And so we did a look into logs. It was for an airport's um, 
payment system for when you exit out of the airport and you pay for your ticket. Mm -hmm. They found out that for a period of like two months or so, they weren't collecting any money. Wow. Yeah. So that was really cool. Turns out not a breach, just bad programming. Ah, yeah. So that was that was kind of interesting learning about how that all operated. But then we had another customer who had a rogue employee and we had to go in to we had to go to North Carolina in the middle of summer and in the middle of the night even to make copies and take pictures of all this stuff because the guy was on vacation and administrative leave. So we had to make sure that we got all this stuff before he came back and without um, him expecting, suspecting that anybody was there because they were going to let him go and they were afraid he was going to get litigious. Wow. Yeah. So super late nights and then having just the whole um, sitting there making bit by bit copies of everything and then the whole chain of custody process just not my thing. A lot of a lot of red tape and a lot of insane attention to detail, I guess. Are yeah. Ways to describe some of that. And and really, I mean, I guess the whole lifestyle, you know, the whole cloak and dagger of, of flying off somewhere in the middle of the night and 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 being there, you know, first thing in the morning or what have you, that's uh that's a different lifestyle. And I guess it's it's definitely not for everyone. I I found it pretty quickly. I did that for a little while and I realized I, I just didn't enjoy it myself. So I can I can certainly relate to that. Yeah, and especially, you know, North Carolina where everybody has a gun. we actually had an armed security officer there to make sure that the guy didn't show up while we were on site and cause trouble. So that was fun. Yeah. That's uh, (laughs) that's nuts. I one time did an incident response and it was, it was not necessarily the same thing, but kind of the looming fear of something bad happening where it was a, it was an ICS plant and uh, it was a sulfur plant and they were afraid that something was going on in the ICS network. And of course there's no necessarily, not necessarily a reason to believe that, something bad would happen. But when something bad happens in a sulfur plant, it's really bad. Like it's explosion. Everyone dies bad. So you kind of, as I'm, as I'm walking around this facility, collecting hard drives in my Nomex suit that they made me wear with my hard hat and my, my special glasses and safety equipment, I'm thinking, man, if this really is a breach and something goes wrong, I'm going to die. Um, oh, man. And not every incident response is like that, but I guess same way. Like it, it, it does. It's one of the few, I think fields in information security where you do actually have a tangible threat in some cases of something really bad happening in that way directly to you. Yeah. I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. The best way I can describe CloudShark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use CloudShark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me, uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. Saved me a ton of time. It provides a lot of great analysis features too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, it also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature, and I had a chance to play with it recently, and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe, who are good friends of mine, and you can learn more about it by going to cloudshark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code Podcast. Now, let's get back to Megan. So tell me about, uh, so tell me about getting on at Rapid7 and, and what kind of compelled you to, to make that move. Yes. Um, 
So I wasn't actually looking to change careers. I was pretty happy with Protivity. Uh, they were starting to up their involvement at different conventions. So that was really great for me because I think community involvement is really big. If you're going to be in a security, if you're going to be a uh sorry, if you're going to be a security company, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So actually at my wedding one year, um, I think this was like 20, I'm doing mental math. My husband's going to be upset. Uh, 2014, <laughs> when, uh, at my wedding, one of my uh, friends came up and she's like, hey, I'm working at Rapid7. I'm really loving it. Would you like an interview? And I'm like, why are you asking? Like, really, it's Rapid7. <laughs> you know, they've been big yeah. in the community ever since I first started joining. So I was like, yeah, I'll interview. So I started talking with folks actually during my honeymoon. Wow. I have a really, really unsweet and understanding husband, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully he doesn't listen to this and find out you, you didn't remember the year that you uh, you got married there. I, I don't know. I know. Right? Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, just to interject real quick, the secret to that one is I, I'm horrible with dates. I actually had me and my wife's wedding date uh, engraved on the inside of my wedding band. So, nice. So basically every morning I can wake up and look at it and say, nope, didn't forget the anniversary today. <laughs> She's also, I'm gonna have to remember that. That's nice. <laughs> she's also a very loving and understanding partner. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but go ahead, go ahead. Oh, but yeah. So at that point, I was interviewing for their deployment and training team because I was really interested in more of a user outreach type role. So teaching them how to use their tools um, in a more effective way. Because a lot of times, folks go to places like RSA or ISC Squared or a whole bunch of other, you know, uh, or Black Hat, right? And they're, they got all of these advertisements from all these vendors. They purchase all the things, get plugged in, and then it kind of just sits there. Mm -hmm. So the thought of being able to actually go out and teach them how to use it and how to make an impact in their vulnerability management program was something that really interested me. Yeah, that makes so, Yeah, so I stayed there for two years in that group, and then... This along that time, this other group, the stra uh, strategic advisory services group, kind of started growing. So, um, it started out with like the manager Miranda Signa, and then Jay Radcliffe was in there, Guillaume, uh, Mark Stanislav, um, and a couple of others were there. And then over the time, it just grew, and I'm like, wait, that's basically a team of all of my really good friends. I want to go over there. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all. Awesome. When you have the opportunity to work with, you know, your friends, that's like the best thing in the world, right? That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And then when I found out the kind of deliverables and the kind of stuff that they were doing, I'm like, heck yeah, this is absolutely something I want to do. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, now you mentioned the word kind of community, and I think that's been kind of a theme as we've talked over the past little while now. Is is that's that's important to you? And I guess kind of in parallel, as your kind of career progressed and you you moved into this role at Rapid Seven, you've also done more within the community, and you've actually gotten, I guess, involved in some degree with some of these conferences you had spoken at. I mean, tell me a little bit about the progression of that through your career, and and why community is such an important thing to you. Yeah. So. It started, like you said, it started out with speaking. And then I was like, okay, I'm kind of, I kind of need this break because I went through this period of um, what do I have to contribute? Mm -hmm. So I was struggling with that. And I'm like, okay, during that time, I'm going to, I'm going to volunteer at more conferences. That's what I decided I was going to do. So um, 
Banshee had put out a tweet in November, like four or five years ago, asking for folks to uh, for folks who would be interested in running Proving Grounds. And she explained what Proving Grounds was. And I'm like, I messaged her immediately. I'm like, I want to do this. I want to run this. This will be amazing. Please let me do this. And then she's like, oh, okay, definitely. Well, since you haven't done this before, um, we have another person who's interested in running it, uh, Security Moe. Would you mind running it with him? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't mind. I love Security Moe. He's amazing. He's great people. So I was super stoked. And that's how I, I started getting volunteering with B-Sides. And then uh, with DEF CON, <clears throat> Um, when I moved out to Seattle, I became really good friends with Nikita. And then I just went to cons and kind of followed her. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, well, if you're going to follow me anyways, we might as well put you to work, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of fell into gooning that way. And then um, <clears throat> now I'm the department lead for their workshops. Wow. So this is my second year running workshops. That's awesome. So, I mean, it sounds like DEF CON especially like has a, has a pretty special place in your heart. I mean, it's kind of been one of the consistent themes throughout your career. You know, you moved around all these different places, but that's been kind of a constant. Yeah. I think I've only missed one DEF CON since I started going. Wow. That's crazy. Well, well so t tell me this, and we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are very new to this field and maybe have never been to DEF CON and are considering it. I mean, what, 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 what would you tell them? I mean, why go to DEF CON? Because you're never, you never know what you're going to learn and who you're going to meet and connect with. I mean, yeah, it might not re result in like an immediate job or something like that, but I have lifelong friendships that I've built as a result of just randomly talking to people at DEF CON. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, and networking is, is really one of the main reasons everyone tells you to go to conferences, right? I mean, it's, it's, the talks are great, but really you can, a lot of those are recorded and you can see some of those elsewhere, but really it's, it's hallway con and talking to people and meeting people. Now, one of the things in our field is sometimes people can be a little socially awkward. Sometimes it's a little hard or it's a little nerve wracking to go up and break the ice with people. How do you, what do you think about that? I mean, as far as how do people get over that? Is it just, you got to jump in with both feet and come up and introduce yourself? What do you, what do you say to the folks who are really nervous and intimidated about the social networking aspect of it there? So a lot of us are pretty introverted. I'm lucky that I can be extroverted in spurts. <laughs> so I have no problem just turning to people and like, I'm going to awkwardly introduce myself and then we're going to be friends. <laughs> so that's kind of what I did at my first DEF CON. But what's great about the way that DEF CON's kind of evolved now is it has so many villages and even the workshops because um, you have these areas where you are in a room with people that have the same interests as you right? And they're doing hands-on learning stuff. And so you already have that icebreaker built in for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know things or share common interests with people at that point. Yeah. That's cool. Well, yeah, and that's the key, right? Is it's, it's you're all in the same room or in the same hotel for a reason. And it's that we all share this interest in securing networks or different facets of it. And if you can use that for an icebreaker somehow, and, and there are a lot of pivots and ways to do that, and that's going to that's gonna help you out. Absolutely. And then, like I said, in the villages, you're sitting like in the social engineering or the crypto village, you know, you're like, okay, well, not only are you interested in hacking in general, you have this very specific interest in crypto like I do. And we can use that as a starting point and talk about what we know and maybe teach each other something. 
Yeah. And, and it sounds like it, it, I mean, DEF CON, it, it's so huge. There's so much variance in the type of people there. There's almost something for everyone in the realm of security and even almost outside of security. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's awesome. Um, I've only actually been to one DEF CON. Uh, I went to DEF CON like eight years ago and I've not had a chance to get back. I'm hoping to, to get back soon and, and you sell it so well, like I want to go this year now. So, so maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll see you there, but that's, that's fantastic. Cool. Uh, so let's, uh, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, education a little bit. And you, you talked about when you first went on to rapid seven, you were involved with training a little bit. Training's a, a hot topic in our field, right? Because there's, there's, there's not a lot of options and it seems they're kind of on two ends of the spectrum. There's a, a, quite a bit of free training out there you can find, but it's sometimes a little low quality. It's not always the best. There's obviously what you can go to cons and get. Some people can afford to go to cons, certainly B-sides that makes that more accessible for everybody. And then on the other end of that, you have the really expensive training where you're paying six, seven, eight thousand $8,000 a seat. Is that model going to work going forward, do you think, or do you think we got to get to another place? I think there's definitely something in the middle that we can try to build up, that we can find and build up a little bit of, I, I don't know, we have this fear of standardization and being just like every other industry, but I think that that could be good to an extent. Yeah. So, well, you, you say, so we want to be like other industries. I mean, do you think, do you think we have to be like other industries to be successful? I mean, do you think, I mean, I look at a field like medicine and to be in medicine, you have to, you go to college, you go to med school, you do a residency, and then you can finally be a doctor or you go to college and you go to, to nursing school, you can finally be a nurse, so on and so forth. Do you think we need something like that? Do you think we need a more formalized system or do you think it can continue, can continue to be this ad hoc a la carte model? So the problem is going to always be that human resources and hiring managers are going to want that degree, right? They want that paper because it's like an insurance saying, hey, if all else fails, we have this paper saying that they have somewhat of an idea of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that might not be the case, but I don't think we need anything as crazy as like doctors and nurses or folks like that. But first of all, like I, I can see the benefit of learning how to formally write, you know, that's going to be a really important thing, especially if you're doing anything customer facing. I mean, even pen testers have to write up their findings, right. In a way that's meaningful to the customer so they can make changes in their network. Yeah, absolutely. But beyond that, I think we need something a little bit more hands-on kind of like what, um, the offensive security folks do. Right. Right. So, you go in, you do a little bit of reading, but then you have a playground where you have a task to accomplish. So something like that could be good, or maybe even case studies, right? Here's real life examples of what you're gonna run into out in the field, and we can discuss and role play or whatever how to work through that problem. Right, so it's it's it's, it's more applied knowledge and, and less theory, or at least a better distribution of theory to applied knowledge, maybe. Yeah, because right now it's largely theory, and it's theory that's taught by folks without that background. Right, it's it's folks who are maybe like 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 we talked about earlier, like people in a computer science department who have been doing nothing but you know systems architecture and and programming for forty years, and now they're teaching security when they've not actually done a lot of hands-on practical security. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, how do you think? I mean, it sounds like, you know, we we definitely need like 
this to be a little more permeated within our university system. It sounds like, cause we do need those pieces of paper and some level of maybe accreditation or standardization to some degree, but how, how do we get there in college? I mean, and I know that's, that's not an easy question when we're obviously not there now. I mean, maybe there's some flashes of brilliance in some places, but, but is the university system as a source of, of real valuable education for information security, is that a viable thing still, or will it be, or can it be? I don't think the traditional brick and mortar could, I mean, they might be able to, but it would be really hard to break into that kind of like old school of thought and, you know, get a Dean to trust you with an entire department to say, Hey, you know, you don't know me. We're, you know, we're this relatively young field, right? But give us a department and let us run amok and try to make something that works for folks who think like we do. Yeah. And that's tough. I mean, people, people are not really uh, eager to hand over the reins, like you say, especially these folks who are kind of institutionalized to education have been doing this for quite some time. And, you know, here comes along this, this whippersnapper who thinks that their field is special, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, we do have several uh, folks in our industry who do teach, you know, um, but I think if we have more who turn to it, I think that could only go to help younger generations or getting involved in things at the high school level. I mean, there's several different mentorship programs. Um, I forget the name of it. Cindy Jones, Cinders and Ashes on Twitter. She's involved with a, like a U.S. Patriot program or something like that, that focus on, focuses on cybersecurity in school, in high schools in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I serve on, on an advisory board for a high school here in uh, St. Pete that uh, does e-commerce, but they're starting to focus on security more because they're seeing it as a field that's only going to continue to grow. So they're doing things like web application security and penetration testing and stuff like that. So maybe it's a little bit of getting them at a younger age and then also trying to shake up the institution as it stands now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and, and that seems like a reasonable combination because you, you have to figure we definitely need more people in this field. And part of that is is lighting that spark in, in younger people and getting them interested in it in the first place. And then once they're interested, it's nurturing it and, and kind of building the spark into a flame. And, and maybe that's what happens in the university system or, or what should happen. Uh, because, I mean, right now, and, and tell me if you disagree, but I think we have a case right now where a lot of people get interested in security, go get a four-year degree, get out of college and realize I don't really have any idea what I'm doing. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, and that's and that's a shame. And I, I know I, I hire people in my current role, and uh, I'm always trying to, to hire folks. But and it's almost a depressing thing when you when you hire this this kid out, or want to hire this kid out of this four year degree program, and he's you know also maybe thirty or forty thousand dollars in debt, and he doesn't have any of the skills he needs to do the job. Um, so getting people there is is a big challenge. Um, now with the training you do at Rapid Seven, obviously that's maybe not or directed at that type of scenario, it's more for people who may be existing professionals in the community, or it's at least for your own people. Is it, is it one of those two things? Yeah. So it's more um, like product based training. Gotcha. So, yeah. so how do you handle one of the things that I found from my time working with vendors is it's, really hard to get people who are really on a level playing ground when you want to teach them how to use a product. So, you know, I'll, I'll come in and I'll be teaching someone how to use a SIM and they won't know what an IP address is sometimes, or, or maybe it's not always that bad. They'll know what an IP address is, but they've never investigated a security alert. When you do training, 
do you have a, a method or a way? Do you try to evaluate people first and then kind of customize to them, or do you try to hit a specific baseline? Hmm. So I try to feel folks out when we first start talking. I'm like, okay, you know, uh, we're going to start with some more high. And the way we actually built our training at the time was like we started with more high level stuff and then got deeper into the this is what happens when you start a security or a vulnerability scan, you know? Um, and then by that time, you got to ask repeatedly if there's any questions, right? Because everybody's afraid of looking dumb or asking a stupid question or they don't know what questions to ask, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that can be a little bit difficult. Yeah, and that, and that I feel like that's unique in some way to our field, the, the degree at which people don't want to feel stupid. And I think, I mean, it's almost like they, they feel like everyone around them is smarter than them. And I mean, it, we talked about imposter syndrome a little bit, and that's that's probably a part of that. But I don't, I've not been able to put my finger on why that is, uh, why we have so many people who feel almost inadequate. I mean, is do you have any thoughts on that? Honestly, I have no clue. I mean, <laughs> as two psych majors, we're both like, why are we this, why are we all this weird about being dumber than someone else. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I like to think. I mean, if you and I, who like study human like thought and thought patterns and things like that, if we can't at least have like an idea on this, like it's a tough problem to solve. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, well, that's that's a good pivot, and I want you to t- talk about this a little bit if you don't mind. Is is you uh you know at some point you decided to go back to school and get additional education, but not on necessarily strictly technology, but on psychology. Um, yeah. So tell me kind of the thought process behind that and why you decided to do that. So I knew that I wanted to get my master's degree because so I think it was like three to five years ago, I was thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm working at the job I want to work at for the foreseeable future, I'm doing what I want to do for the foreseeable future. What's next? I'm like, okay, well, five to 10 is blurry. What if, okay, so let's move on to like 10 to 20. What do I want to do when I'm like starting to worry about retirement and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, first of all, we'll move back to Florida because why not? That we'll, We're just going to beat the rush. So there you go. <laughs> we moved back to Florida. Um, my husband was actually born and raised in the Seattle area. So it was his first time living or being in the South for longer than like a weekend. Oh, wow. Culture shock there, right? <laughs> oh, man. Total culture shock. Why are these people in the store talking to me? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Well, I want to teach. I think I want to keep teaching maybe at a school, at, you know, at a college or something after I retire because that would be fun and I won't get really bored. So okay, what do I want to teach? And I'm like, oh, I don't know if security in a university is going to be a thing. And then if it is, you know, I want to help kind of shape that. So I got really curious about learning theory and social learning and just like everything to do with, you know, how we learn. And then from there, you know, I'm like, okay, well, psychology is a natural progression there, right? And then I found out about industrial organizational psychology. And from there, I was like, oh, man, there's so many tie-ins into security. It's so much more than like social engineering, right? Everybody's like, oh, psychology, so you want to be a better SE. And I'm like, no. <laughs> right, yeah. It's it's more about understanding 
the security professionals rather than the people they're they're trying to attack for you necessarily, right? Right. And then also, so like, for example, this term, I'm working, uh, I'm in a really basic, like, well, not basic, I guess, because it's a master's class, but <laughs> a cognitive psychology class. And so they're like, okay, every class we have to write this huge paper, usually a research proposal or something like that about whatever we're studying and how that ties into a certain profession that we're interested in. So I'm like, okay, sec- security, right? So, you know, what's the most common reason that people cite as, well, we don't have a device, a device ugh, I can talk, a diverse number of passwords or not complex passwords, right? It's memory. Yeah. You know, oh, we can't remember this. You know, it's too hard to remember so many different passwords with so many different combinations of characters. And so what I'm studying now is like mnemonic devices and how there's like six different mnemonic devices that can be in use. And I'm like, okay, well, which one would be more useful for remembering passwords? And then how can we translate that into like user awareness? Mm -hmm. So you're you're, you're trying to take concepts in psychology and kind of apply those to tangible things people can use to be more secure. Yep, exactly. That's awesome. You know, one of the things I found difficult when I started pursuing psychology was, you know, I'm used to computers. And with computers, if you get enough people in the room, you can explain any single thing they're doing, right? It's a man-made concept. And really, you can test anything. You know, I can, I can write code. I can, you know, send some packets. I can do whatever I need to do to actually validate any claim I make. Where in psychology, the vast majority of it outside of, you know, the, the stuff that branches into MRI and medical research and what, whatnot, the vast majority of it is not entirely something you can validate or it's kind of abstracted from research that could be interpreted in different ways. And that was a big challenge for me. Did you, do, have you found a similar challenge in grasping that and, and like feeling confident in the things you know or don't know as a result? Oh, absolutely. Especially when talking to other security folks, they're like, okay, well, what are you working on? And I'm like, well, here's my research proposal. And they're like, so for example, the memory thing, a couple of different folks messaged me and they're like, well, what about password managers? And I'm like, no, that's a technical control. You can't <laughs> solely rely on the technical control because the majority of our users don't use them, right? Yeah. So, you know, we have this way of thinking that's totally different from like a large majority of folks. So tr- going from one way of thinking to another has been really challenging but really interesting. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed as I've gotten into this is I, I, I ask a lot more questions now than I ever have. And I think half of my, my friends and colleagues who are in security feel like I'm trolling them most of the time. Cause the questions are so like <laughs> open-ended and existential. And, and I don't know if you get some of the same, but that's, that's just an interesting observation I've had. I haven't come across that yet, but I'm, ex- I'm interested too. <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, I, I, I was unfortunate enough to have to take a course solely on existential psychology, which was maybe the most mind blown thing. It's when you start asking questions like, what does it mean to feel things or what does it mean to be happy or, or just all these weird questions. And it, it's like, I'm not even sure I should be learning this stuff. Like I'm getting too close to the sun right now. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I'm getting to. But th- the thing about that for me is I found, I think humans are exponentially more interesting than computers. I mean, is that something you you think too, or is that, is is that any part of your thinking in this? Oh yeah, for sure. Because there's so many deviations, right? There's no such thing as a standard normal human. Right. And, and really, I mean, the human brain is the most studied thing in the history of mankind, yet the least understood thing, which 
it blows my mind and like it's almost like uncharted territory and it's like I'm exploring rather than just than just learning you know and that's that's the part that was really cool to me yeah and it's really cool to be able to have um all this the, this like sea of research that you can dive into mm-hmm. and use as a reference point whereas with security we're kind of like yoloing it for a while <laughs> Yeah, well, well, most of the research that, that exists in security that's relevant has really come out in the past, you know, little while, right? And and a lot of oh, us, absolutely. and a lot of us are doing it kind of on the fly, um, whereas all this stuff has existed for hundreds of years. If you want to look at pure psychology, or thousands, if you want to look at philosophy and go back to to Greece and Rome and all that stuff. But uh, no, it's fascinating, and I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was just because I know I found you because we do a little bit of similar type thinking, a little t- similar type work, and what I found is there's not many people who are doing the whole psychology to infosec thing and bridging that gap. I think, I think there will be more, but there aren't too many of us right now. Yeah. I think it's definitely going to be a a thing that grows for, so it's going to be kind of like behavioral um, economics, right? For a while people were like, why are you getting your feelings into my math? (laughs) Right. Yeah. So right now folks are giving us the sideways look like, why are you getting your feelings and thoughts into my uh, computers? Yeah. Into my science. I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing I've, I've struggled with is, you know, it's hard to connect some of this stuff to practical applications and do it with certain authority that people will expect. But hopefully, you know, as, as I do more research, as you do more research, as more people get into this, we're, uh, we're kind of charting a little bit of a course is, is what I'm hoping, which is a, a hard thing, sometimes a thankless thing, but uh, hopefully some folks get some benefit from it down the road. Yeah. And I found that like, I don't know. So I haven't done any actual research studies yet. It's mostly been in like a classroom setting and proposals. Have you found like a little reverse interview here? Have you found it difficult to find folks willing to answer surveys or participate in studies that are like a crossbreed of security and psychology? You know, it's not been incredibly difficult. I mean, I'm fortunate enough. I've been, I've been engaging with people directly for a while and I've written my books and people get engaged that way. So I built up a little bit of a, of a small group of people I can, I can survey and have do stuff. The, the harder parts are, you know, I do a lot of simulation based stuff now where I'm having people go in and here's an alert input and here's uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, data points, go in and look through them and I'm going to watch what you do and, and make something useful out of it. And so that's, that was a little more difficult at first. Now that I'm actually releasing some of that research and I spoke on it recently at, uh, at Art and Science and Austin and at Security Onion Con and some of those places. And now that people are seeing some of the results of it, I'm getting a lot more interest in participating, which is pretty cool. So I think, I mean, I I think that's the key is to move this stuff forward. We have to continue to try to tie it to practical things that matter to people. I think it's exactly what you're doing right now with your mnemonic devices to remember passwords because that's a hard thing. And if we want people to use better passwords, we need to help them remember them better. Um, as long as at least we're going to use passwords. So connecting it to practical stuff is what I found to be the key to getting people more involved. Yeah. And then also finding a platform has been kind of interesting because looking at our security cons, I'm like, well, this kind of fits because we're technically still talking about user awareness, but it more belongs in this like psychology area, but I'm not a published author. And those guys are like really staunchy about who they accept. Yeah, well, and I, I tell you, when I think about presenting my security psychology hybrid stuff to actual psychologists, like all, like I turned back into like eighteen-year-old Chris who's never spoken to anybody before. Like, <laughs> I, like I just, I just can't handle. It. Like those guys are at yeah. a different level, and that's like real science. And as much as we want to say, you know, security is science, it's really more engineering. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and so that that frightens me. And I've not even done a lot of that yet, and I'm scared to death too right now. 
Yeah, especially since they openly encourage things like uh, asking questions in the middle of your presentation, right? That yeah. Just the thought of that, I'm like, oh, just let me get through this slide. <laughs> yeah, like if I have to deviate from my script when I'm talking, like I'm done. It's a meltdown. Yeah, now. So exactly. I'm, uh, I'm working up to that, but but maybe one day we'll, <laughs> we'll cool. Well, we're, we're, we're close to the end here. And I, 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 one more question I want to ask, and this is something I kind of ask everyone is, is you know, we've, we've talked about your story here and where you started, where you ended up right now. And, and obviously your story is still being written and a lot more great things to come. But for someone who's listening to this, who's maybe new into the field, or maybe they're older and they're looking for a career change into information security, uh, what would you tell them? What, what would your advice be as far as cracking the field, getting into the field, getting involved and being successful? So it's hard to do when you're in college or in a in a job where they won't pay for you to go to them, but attend as many conferences as possible and talk to as many people as possible. Go on Twitter and talk to folks. Um, IRC is still a thing, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So just I would recommend talking to people, participate in uh, mentorship programs, right? Ask for someone who's been in the community for a while to uh, about their opinion on something, right? A lot of us are really open to talking to new folks about different things. Um, go to DEF CON and go to the different um, workshops and villages because those are a ton of fun. Go to DerbyCon if DEF CON's too big for you, right? Yeah. You know, DerbyCon, Circle City, some of these more regional cons can be – a lot better for someone who can't handle the crowds. So like my husband is a huge introvert and he can barely handle DerbyCon. So that kind of scene is better for him. It just know yourself, but try to push your comfort zone out a little bit. Yeah, that's perfect. And well, and I, and I guess you and I talking right now are kind of a testament to this. Cause I, I, I know you because I saw one of your, Defcon talks once and you know I added you on Twitter and then we talked on Twitter here and there and that's led us up to this point so networking works and it may be a long time thing but you know it definitely works so I think that's that's just wonderful advice thanks cool uh well before we get you out of here I want you to tell me about a couple things real quick uh first I know you're involved with Defcon there's a CFP going on uh tell me a little bit about that yeah so the general CFP is open um as well but the call for workshops is open and we're looking for folks who want to dedicate like three to four hours of their time in Vegas and uh, teach a class, you know, share some of that knowledge (laughs) and maybe, you know, you'll learn something in the process. It's a lot of fun. Um, And that closes out May 1st. Perfect. Okay. And tell us uh, just a little bit about rapid seven. What do they do? How can they help people? Yeah, so a lot of folks, when they think Rapid7, they think of our parties at conferences. <laughs> but uh, we also uh, have a couple of different products that we push, you know, Metasploit being the most popular one. We have a pro version of that. We have Nexpose, which is vulnerability scanning, AppSpider, which is web application scanning. We have a user insight uh product as well. And then on the services side, we offer training on our products. And then also uh, completely vendor agnostic, we do program development um, that can be vulnerability management, instant response. Um, We do uh, cybersecurity maturity assessments and kind of help you figure out where you need to go from where you're at. 
Perfect. Love it. Well, I know, I know they're, they're doing well if they got you there. I know several other folks who work there. I know you mentioned Jay Radcliffe earlier. I, I worked with him for a while back at Guardian. Super brilliant guy and, and a lot of great folks I know who work at Rapid7. So glad to hear about all the cool work you're doing. Um, listen, Megan, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the time spent uh, with me today. It was cool to kind of learn about your path. And I'm really excited to see all the success you've had. And I'm sure it's just going to continue for you. And pretty cool and excited to see about all the, uh, the psychology work you're doing and see how that manifests with some of the uh, uh, the different aspects of that. So thanks for taking the time, uh, spending it with me today and the, uh, the listeners as well. We, uh, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here on this third episode of the Source Code Podcast. Uh, listen, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you do, please do me a little bit of a favor and reach out to Megan on Twitter and let her know you appreciate her time. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Tottenkoff, T-O-T-T-E-N-K-O-P-H. As always, I really enjoy hearing your feedback as well. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Sanders 88 Remember, we're on all the major podcasting platforms. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, the Google Play Store, just about everywhere you can, uh, you'd can. you want to find us. You probably uh, can. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll be back here in a couple weeks with another exciting uh, guest. Thank you all again for listening. I really appreciate you all. And as always, it's a beautiful day to catch back guys.